King Jesus, here we are. We are here for you, Lord. We don't want words on a page. We want your voice. You said you've come to serve us. Here we are, opening hands, empty hands, to be served with liberation by the one who's come to ransom us from all the things that keep us from the love of God. And so come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts, our ears. We want you. We want to want you. We love you and wait for you now. In your name, amen. You can be seated. I think I'm about to feed back here. One moment. Am I good? Testing, 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 testing. Okay, I think we're, I think we're good. Just let me know if I need to grab a handheld because I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I am Chase Whitney. This is my first time preaching here at IAC. In August, I came on staff here as a church planting apprentice, which means that we are on a three-year runway of discernment and development to potentially launch a new church with you guys at the end of that three-year journey. Super exciting. Uh, Such an honor to serve you in that way. And before this, I was involved in pastoral ministry and a church plant where we come from in South Louisiana. Uh, And actually, this, this exact passage in Ephesians was one that at that time God just planted deep in my soul and was, was a source of vision and direction and passion for that church that we got to be a part of. And so this morning, I'm just really aware of the specific attentive love of our God, that after stepping away from ministry for several years, he would have me begin again here at this passage with you. And I couldn't be more thankful. And so I want to thank you for letting me be here and do this. This is kind of a God moment for me. And so I hope you hear from him this morning the way I have through this. Isn't he wonderful? Yes. Amen. And uh, we come today to uh, a turning point in the letter of Ephesians. The NIV that was read just has the word then, but most translations put the word therefore at the beginning of uh, verse 1 in chapter 4 because this is a transition moment for Paul where he's about to start connecting some dots and making application given everything that's come before. And so we need to ask the question, how can he go from some of the most soaring theological statements we have in the New Testament about things like the mystery of his will God's plan for the nations, what he's accomplished in salvation, right? How can he go from all of that in the first half of the book to talking in the next couple of chapters about things as unlofty as not lying to your neighbor, not telling crude jokes, how you relate to your employer? How can he do that? How are those two sets of topics even in the same relatively short letter? Here's how. Those are not two different things. Those are not two different things. Here's what we want to understand. Theology is for a life. It's for a life. 
for your, your daily lives, your daily reality. He says, therefore, because of all the stuff I've said before this, live in a certain kind of way. Walk in a certain kind of way. See, theology is for making and cultivating a certain kind of life in me and you. And so there could be all the theology in the world stacked up in books a mile high, but if that theology doesn't get into us, doesn't get into our blood, our bones, into our instincts, our reflexes for life, our imaginations, our hopes, our longings, then listen, we miss the point. And then I should say that we miss Jesus, right? Because he's not a point. He's not a concept. He is a person to love and to live with and who wants to love and live with us in real time. God isn't just about writing books. He's about redeeming a people. He's about redeeming a people. Here's how Paul says it in our text for today. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Why? So that he might fill all things, verse 10. So he's come all the way down and he's gone all the way up so that you and I would know that from top to bottom, Jesus is too good and too beautiful and too full of burning, jealous love to leave any square inch of his creation untouched by his glory and presence. Someone say amen. And listen, that includes you. That includes you. If he is the father who Paul says is, quote, through all and in all, if his desire is to, quote, fill all things, then you are one of the things he wants to fill with himself, not the religious part of you, not the church part of you, just you, just you. There is no part of you, no part of our community that he wants to leave untouched by his goodness and grace. Theology is for a life. And it's a life, he says, that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul's language for this in Ephesians 4 is calling. You could also think of it as a kind of royal summons, this invitation of a lifetime to belong and receive heart, mind, body, and soul to the Most High God as his own son or daughter in all the ways that he describes in chapters 1 through 3. And then he repeats that word calling, calling, as if to say, stop and take this in. You've been called. You are so deeply loved by the God who knit you together in your mother's womb that your name is on his lips. Your name. On the lips of the Lord of heaven and earth, you're called. And listen, in a world of absolute meaningless, unending consumption and fear, Paul is saying to the community of Jesus and to us today, you've got a purpose You've got direction. You've got a place you belong, something to do, somewhere to go. You are called. And so often, we, we talk as if this idea of calling is only relevant for clergy or for people involved in full-time faith-based employment of some kind. I don't know if you've experienced that, but that's one of the ideas he's going to blow up as we go along here. Uh, but before we get there, let's pause and try to get this picture that Paul has in mind. What would be a life worthy of Jesus and his calling? It's an important question to ask because as we sit with that, it helps to reveal some of the hidden narratives and gospels or false gospels that we tend to operate with uh, without knowing it. And so for me, 
I used to think about this in terms of a kind of existential pressure weighing me down to go and do something great for God in the world because he is so worthy, but really what I had in my mind was so demanding. And because, you know, the stakes are so impossibly high, right? But what if Paul's whole message, which is seen in the way that he has structured his letter to the Ephesians, is not that we now need to go do great things for God, but instead that you are something great God has done, and so now go and live accordingly. See, it comes back to this question, what what would be a life worthy of Jesus? What, What would a way of walking through the world that is worthy of a Savior this kind, this present, this good, a Savior this strong and trustworthy and generous, what would that look like? <laughs> would it look like kind of frantically making sure I'm measuring up in all these religious key performance indicators? Or would it look more like being in love? Would it look like this list of descriptions he gives in verse 2? Humility, gentleness, patience long-suffering love, eager to maintain unity, bound together with peace. Okay, now I challenge you to come up with a list that is more opposite from the cultural moment we are living through right now, especially on the verge of an election year. I don't think it can be done. And uh, this was just as countercultural for Paul as it is for us. For example, The word he uses for humility was specifically seen and written about in his day as a vice, not a virtue, something looked down upon, something shameful. And so it just is the case that Christians in all times and places, in all contexts, have been called to the difficult work of being a countercultural community whose life together feels like the living Jesus just walked into the room or moved into the neighborhood or joined a community. I mean, that's what, that's what this list is. It's the presence of Jesus living alive in a group of people. Because God has raised us up with Christ, like he says in the first half of the book, we don't have to raise ourselves up in pride. We're free to be humble. Because the Almighty One uses his strength to embrace us as sons and daughters, we can be gentle, <laughs> Because the one who holds all times in his hands is also the one who opens his hands to us in blessing, we don't have to live in a rush. We can be patient. We can, be, we can have space in our lives. And we could go on and on down the list. See, it's the love of God that releases us into the life of God. It's being shaped from the inside out by the promises of God that makes us a people marked by the presence of God. And so that's the kind of life that's worthy of our calling to belong to Jesus. And and I'm convinced it's the life we're all already aching for. (laughs) I mean, I want the way I walk through my days to be worthy of this Jesus and his calling. We, We want a lived reality that matches the promises and work of God that we talk about and read about. This isn't some kind of like try harder, do better, work it up yourself religion. This is live in accord with the promise of redemption that the friend of sinners has declared over your life, which is really what we all want most deeply anyway. And so if we're going to do that, 
we're going to take Jesus up on that invitation, how's it going to happen? How in the world, in a time like ours, are we going to be a people whose life together looks and sounds and smells like this and not like the world around us? Paul's answer, by grace. If you summed up chapters 1 through 3 in one word, grace would be a strong contender. So everything he's talked about from the first half of the book, the grace that gives those promises I described that undergirds each of the characteristics he lists in verse 2. And then in the second half of the book, he's going to give all kinds of instruction and talk about all kinds of grace that God gives so that we can live worthy of his call. But in this passage, he's focused on gifts that Jesus has given to his church that are not concepts or abilities like the spiritual gift of encouragement or faith or something like that. These gifts are people, certain kinds of people and leaders. Verse 11, so he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, say this out loud. I am in full-time ministry. <laughs> we get this so backwards, right? Too often the assumption in our context is that there are a few professional Christians whose jobs are to hog all the ministry and treat everybody else like consumers of religious goods and services. And by the way, that's how we get a kind of church economics that is more attentive and surrendered to market forces than it is to the heart of our bridegroom. That's kind of another sermon for another day. Um, but we do, we focus so much on the people given as gifts by Christ to be leaders in the church as if that is the main thing. Or as if those are the people who are really called and, and all the rest of us just sort of fit into or serve their calling. But I, I, I hear that, I hear that. And, and I, the question that just comes in my mind is, does that sound anything like what Paul is imagining here? I see a head shaking. No. No, we have church leaders equipping the saints for the work of ministry, and then we have saints, ordinary followers of Jesus like you and me, doing ministry. You're the ones in ministry. And to be clear, by this I do not mean that the more churchy program stuff you fill up your schedule with, the better. That might be a good next step for some of you. Of course, what we do, gathered together on Sunday or any other days, is crucially important. And many hands make light work, and the more that we can all contribute together to make it happen, the better. But friends, why is it important? It's important because all of life is downstream from here from this table. It's important, like we talked about last week, because an encounter with the living God and his good news in our worship together as his church gospelizes us from the inside out for all of life. Remember, like we said earlier, he's, he's about to talk in the next couple of chapters about a whole bunch of regular everyday stuff. So what is this, this ministry that you apparently have, according to Paul? Well, he, uh, he mentions things like telling the truth, doing honest work and sharing with people in need, 
the way we talk, the character of our speech, being forgiving instead of bitter. He talks about basic everyday relationships like the ones between a husband and wife, kids and their parents, employees and employers. In other words, life, that's your ministry. Like we said, not not the spiritual part of you, not the churchy part of you, just your everyday life lived wholeheartedly in the way of Jesus together as a group. That's how we join in God's redemptive work around us. And look, our our world is having um, such a crisis of leadership right now. It would take a whole series of things to uh, properly kind of pick that apart and apply the gospel to it. But for our purposes, all we need to say today is that our good news, Jesus is Lord, is a statement about leadership, about governance. And so whatever Jesus' solution to our leadership problems is, it's not to abolish it or to pretend like we can live without it. Like most things with Jesus, it is to transform or transfigure it. And so, in a world where so much of the leadership we experience is so profoundly inhumane, so deeply disordered, all too often extractive and exploitative, trying to get something from us and use us. In a world like that, what is Jesus' vision of leadership? Well, there's a whole lot that could be said about that. Uh, But again, from this passage, he says these leaders are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, So their ministry is to make sure that your ministries, as citizens of the kingdom, living in your neighborhoods, with your relationships, your homes, your workplaces, your schools, is built up and has everything it needs. And so here's what I want you to get. There's a ministry for your ministry. There's a group of people whose calling is to serve your calling, whose whole vocation is your vocation, whose life's work is your life in Christ. Your life is ministry. Their work is not the point. Now listen, it is mission critical. It's not the point. Yours is. Like we read earlier, he's creating a kingdom of priests, not a class of priests. The whole reason the kinds of people he lists here are around, the whole reason Jesus has given them as gifts to the church is to make us all into the gifts he desires to give to the world around us. So the circles you run in, the kids you are raising, the conflicts you are resolving, the classes you are attending, the clock you are punching, the prayers you are praying, the ministry of your life is the point and the gift Jesus intends to give us by providing these leaders in the church is to make you ready for your ministry so that your ministry is full of grace and strength and maturity and love. So the next time you change that diaper, the next time you treat your coworker like a human being instead of a cog in the machine, when you're encouraging your teammate or having integrity with your teachers and classmates, when you're caring for an aging parent or faithfully showing up again in the midst of a difficult season, 
the next time you honor your boss or introduce yourself to a neighbor or do your budget, remember, friends, he's coming to fill all of it. The thing he has called and filled you for is not something other than your daily life. Your whole life is ministry, is the place where he himself wants to come and live and work on the earth. And so for anyone who has felt beat down or who's felt less than, because for whatever reason, somewhere along the way, you internalized a gospel that was too small and too narrow and that made you think you needed to get on some kind of church payroll in order to mean something to God or in order to do something meaningful with God. If that's you, hear good news. He's coming to fill all of it. He's not waiting for you to come to him as if he needed you to do anything, right? He wants you not, what you, not just what you can do for him. He has come to us. He is calling and filling and meeting you right where you are to make your everyday life the place where his kingdom comes. Now look, I love pastors, faith leaders, and we need more good ones. And I've been a pastor, and I'm working on planning a church with you guys. So, um, but I know I speak for many of our mission partners and pastors here when I say that I don't want to be a pastor, a leader, who's always obsessed with how other people are revolving around and propping up my calling. I want to be a pastor whose metric of success is Look at the radiance of heaven on this people. Look at the way they bring their joys and tears to a living God who cares. Look at the way there is no needy person among them. Look at the, look at the joy and vision and power that they bring to their everyday lives. Look at how rested they are. This is a people in whom God lives and has found a resting place. So if we were to let that idea really grab us, if we were to let Jesus take us all the way there, if, if the everyday details of my work and household and life were dripping with the presence and vision of Jesus, then what might be the fruit of that? Well, uh, here are the things that Paul lists in the next couple of verses. Here's where Jesus is leading you if you give him more ground in your life. Maybe just close your eyes and let this kind of wash over you. Building up of the body of Christ, all of us attaining to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood or womanhood, attaining to the fullness of Christ, not being like unstable children, living according to the truth in love, growing up into Christ, being built up in love. It's pretty strong. And so what happens if I am captivated by Jesus' vision that right where I am, I am called, not just the clergy, I am called, and the works right in front of me are themselves the works of ministry that I am being equipped for and that Jesus wants to fill with himself. What happens? Well, guess what? You guys, my church family, get built up. My, my friends and, and, and family reach a little bit more of, quote, unity in the faith. 
If, see, if the way you commute to work, the way you do your homework, the way you love your kids, the way you embrace your singleness or, or do your budget or enjoy a day off, if all of it is done as the works of ministry we are called and filled for, then the person sitting next to you right now, quote, grows up a little more into Christ, like he says. Then, then your neighbors or your friends or your spouse comes to a deeper knowledge of the Son of God. Because, look, we've all experienced this. Being around people like that, it stirs your faith. It reminds you of your first love for Jesus and his love for you. It makes hope rise up in you because look, look at this brother or sister whose presence makes Jesus so real to me. Until, he says, as each part does its work, we all attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's where he's taking us. As each part does its work. No one else can offer the gift you have to Jesus and his people. Listen, I want this to set you free right now. No one else can be the unrepeatable gift you are to Jesus, to his heart. You're a gift to him. He wants to be around you. Why else would he want to fill your whole life? And, and, and he has designed his church and the human soul in such a way that all of us gathering together to see and experience one another, offering the gift of our lives to Jesus and to one another, it, it builds our faith. It makes us all more who we were made to be. And it creates this cycle of love growing and maturing between us and to our king. And then the hurting world around us spiraling into division and fear right now, they will see us and say, what a gift these people are. What a calling. What a time to belong to Jesus. And he uses this really powerful image here in verse 14 that I want to use as our launching point into prayer. He says, one of the fruits of us living in a manner worthy of this calling is that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. You felt tossed lately? Like on the inside, you're not standing on firm ground. Like anything you see or hear or experience has this ability to just blow you all around. Get your attention off of Jesus. Nudge your heart toward despair and overwhelm or contempt and apathy and cynicism. The leadership of the world wants living in that kind of childish fragility. The leadership of Jesus wants to give us childlike faith where he is all in all. Childish fragility makes us weak and diminished. Unable to face life, our sense of calling and purpose just kind of at the mercy of everything shifting around us and within us. Childlike faith makes us pillars of purpose, strength, and joy in a world of sinking sand. Pillars upon which the kingdom of heaven can gain ground on earth. 
In fact, we are worth more to the enemy and to the forces at work in our world if they can get us addicted, distracted, emotionally immature, self-obsessed, and believing lies. But Jesus loves you too much for that. He doesn't want us walking around with no idea who and what we are, no vision, no sense of where we're going, why we're here. So if you want this to go deeper in this morning, you don't just want to do Sunday or church with God. You want to do life with God. You want the living God alive and working in the works of your everyday life. If that's you, God wants what you want. If you're a young person who wants to hear the voice of teenagers and college students, if you want to hear the voice of the friend of sinners calling you up into godly, mature manhood and womanhood, you need to listen to this. We believe in you. We love you. This is a safe place for you to grow up in the Lord. You can meet with him right where you're sitting. We will have trained prayer ministers up here in the front as well as myself. We would love to pray with you and over you. Adults who are hungry for more of God and more of your life, we would love to pray over you. Leaders who want to be more deeply captivated by this vision that your calling is to serve their calling. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to fill us for that. Let's go to him now together and ask him to do this. Jesus, we thank you that you are calling us right where we are that you are filling all things and that includes us. Oh, we want to belong to you. There's no better life than belonging to you, Jesus. Thank you that you no longer call us servants, you call us friends. We are sons and daughters. Our whole lives are ministry, not because you are our boss, but because we are your bride. Oh, Lord, come and speak that to every heart in this room right now. For retired folks trying to decide, what is Jesus' vision for this chapter of my life? Oh, Holy Spirit, come. For teachers, for servers, for parents. May everything we do, Jesus, may our hands and feet be touching things around us the way you would touch them. The areas that we are speaking into, may it be as if you are speaking. We thank you that like a faithful bridegroom, you want oneness with us and you are not content to settle for anything less. You love us too much. So bring us deeper in this morning. Heal and love us into this life where everything is yours and you are all in all and your kingdom moves right where we are because you are in us. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come.